we're pretty fortunate. We have a lot of open space protected in, in Lake County. You know, we have over 30,000 acres of forest preserves. We have two state parks. We have um, other natural areas that, you know, function as these green spaces that we're looking to c connect. And having, you know, this wildlife monitoring data kind of allows us to justify that where we're looking at what kind of ecosystem services they might provide and how they might benefit the community. Um, so even though we're in a pretty urban county, there's still a, a big push to preserve this open space in these, these natural communities. From the Lake County Forest Preserves in Libertyville, Illinois, it's Words of the Woods. I'm Brett Pito. The 2020 U.S. Census is approaching, but our scientists take a different kind of census year-round, an animal census. Today's episode features Gary Glowacki and Andrew Rudder, both wildlife ecologists, and John Vanek, a doctoral candidate from Northern Illinois University. They'll highlight how they collect data about local wildlife and what insights they've drawn so far. Gary, Andrew, John, thanks for speaking with me today. Hi, Brett. Happy to be here. How's it going, Brett? Thanks for having us. Let's let's talk a little bit about the Wildlife Monitoring Program. So it's it's designed to find, measure, and map animal animal communities within the forest preserves. Um, when did it when did it start? How long has it been running? We really started the program in two thousand and nine, um, where we um, had a full schedule. We we uh, rotated preserves and really started um, assessing the wildlife in a, a, a regimented way to detect changes over time, determine what inhabits these preserves and um, um, how, uh, what factors changing uh, landscapes, habitat restoration, how those might affect communities down the line. What, what does a typical day, like, typ typical day look like if you're doing wildlife monitoring? Well, kind of one of the coolest things about wildlife monitoring is there are no typical typical days. So every day is different. Like fishing, you know, you kind of never know what you're going to catch. So um, the wildlife monitoring program is structured in, in we have four different periods. Um, so the first period we're targeting primarily amphibians. So we go out to the preserves um, and kind of rotate on a week-by-week -week basis. Um, and we'll set out traps um, to catch uh, amphibians and whatever else may happen into those traps. And in period two, we focus on birds, so breeding birds. This is typically in the month of June, and we look at what kind of productivity is happening, what birds are inhabiting, what birds are breeding, um, and get, kind of get a sense of uh, um, where these birds are occurring throughout, throughout the county. Period three, we focus on reptiles, so we're talking snakes and turtles. And then period four is where we target mammals and both medium-sized mammals um, you know, coyotes, raccoons, in addition to small mammals like mice, voles, and, and shrews and, and such. I think one of the most important things to highlight for folks is that that structure is really set up on to address the seasonality of those specific groups of species. So, uh, you know, that first period is um, setting out traps for uh, amphibians that are emerging from uh, winter uh, hibernation and whatnot, and then the next period is really addressing migrating birds uh, that are coming through to breed in June, and then reptiles and uh, uh, mammals in the early fall. And so the the whole program was kind of structured um, like that throughout the growing, the growing season so that we can get the most detections possible. Andrew, would you like to speak a little to the primary tools that are used in monitoring? I'm, I'm thinking the actual implements in hand. Yeah, so we like to employ the um, most efficient methods that we can. And, uh, you know, part of the program is also 
uh, teaching these young wildlife professionals as well. So we typically hire seasonal technicians to come out and work for us. Uh, I did it before I went to graduate school, and it's a great way to get uh, field experience um, if you're trying to move on to be a full-time wildlife ecologist. Um, but every uh, species uh, requires a different method, right? So in the early spring, we're deploying these hoop traps to try and catch these uh, amphibians in these ephemeral pools as well as fish. Um, in June, we're mostly doing point counts, so we have a timed uh, breeding bird survey where you stand at one of our points and listen to all the birds that are calling and identify all the birds that fly by. Uh, for reptiles, we have these uh, cover boards that essentially just offer um, a refuge for any passing amphibian or reptile that might be uh, looking for a place to hide, and so you can detect them simply by flipping up the board and capturing anything that's underneath. Um, and then in the fall, we're trying to look at mammal diversity using trail cameras and small mammal traps called Sherman traps. Um, all, all of these are uh, represented throughout the literature as um, the most widely accepted means to detect these species. And since we've been doing the program so long now, uh, we've got a lot of really consistent methodology for the last decade. And uh, that really helps us out with our sampling structure. One of the other kind of important things to remember is all of our survey techniques, we use mark recapture. So um, when we catch a turtle, we notch the shell so we can uniquely identify that turtle and we can see how long it persists. And with that, we can create density estimates. We can have an idea on population size and how well they're doing. So we, you know, we mark snakes, we mark turtles. We actually mark some of the, the small mammals as well, ear tags, paint marks, and uh, allows us to get a better handle on what's happening in these populations and not just what's there and how often do we detect them. But we're actually able to put some unique metrics to these, these numbers. It seems like wildlife monitoring employs a lot of different senses, uh, human senses, just listening and being able, being able to identify different bird calls, distinguishing them from each other, vision, being able to identify the difference between tracks and scant and other signs. How do you develop those skills over time to be able to pinpoint that's exactly what I'm looking at or what I'm hearing? That, that's a great question, and it's um, some people are better. And For example, um, one of the species we do a lot of work with are smooth green snakes. They're a species in greatest need of conservation, and they're a green snake in a sea of green grass. And um, me, being colorblind, um, I am terrible at finding green snakes and then anything red, so I'm red-green colorblind, so anything that's red or green, I have difficulty. But I might not be very good at it, but John might be just fine. So, um, you know, we try to overcome that by using standard sampling techniques. Um, so I could put out a funnel trap and a drift fence and I can and check cover boards, and I'm just as good as John at finding smooth green snakes. But if we're doing visual encounter surveys or I'm just trying to find them happenstance, I'm not going to have as much success. So one of the things we really try to do is standardize things so it doesn't matter who's employing those techniques and try to take the personal bias out of, out of our sampling techniques. Even with that personal bias, uh, some specific methods have limitations because they're entirely based on the person's skill level. So a great example of that is our uh, breeding bird surveys. Um, you know, we can do our best to, there's, there's so many points that we have to uh, go and do breeding bird surveys at, do point counts at, uh, during the month of June that we typically employ local members of uh, Lake County, Cook County, Audubon Society to come and help us. Um, but it's really up to us to find folks that are uh, particularly adept birders before they go out there. Um, one person's, uh, you know, 
sense of, of hearing in general can be a limitation for that or sense of sight as well as um, their, how, how good they are at identifying birds by, by sound. And so that can be a limit, big limitation even when you standardize that method. Yeah, and one of the things we try to do is that even there could be, a, the bird surveys are a great example where you have some variance between people, but we try to keep the same people monitoring the same preserves year after year. So if you're consistently wrong, or if you're wrong, you're at least consistently wrong. So we try to keep the same uh, bird volunteers, um, bird monitors, doing the same sites year after year. So at least if they might be missing a species because their ear cannot detect a certain high-pitched sound, they may you know, have some biases there, but at least that's going to be consistent over time. So they're not going to have erroneous um, um, data in that, in that capacity. And we can also explicitly account for that variation um, in observer ability um, in our quantitative methods for analyzing the data. This is something that wildlife ecologists have been working on for years because everyone knows someone's better at finding something than others. Andrew can tell you right now I'm terrible at identifying plants. And that I'll, I'll say something is one thing and he's like, well, are you sure about that? <laughs> um, so we can definitely account for those things. That leads to data, data being consistent, which allows good comparison over time, right? So you're comparing apples to apples, turtles to turtles, so to speak. How, how does that help when it comes time for data analysis to be able to draw those larger trends? Well, it's, it's really paramount. You need to keep track of how many traps are out on the landscape. You need to know how many cover boards you flipped. Um, you need to know how long you are listening for birds. And, and really keeping track of that effort is just so important when trying to come up with good estimates of population size or population density, or even just presence absence on the landscape. You can imagine if someone is listening for birds for five minutes versus someone who's listening to birds for 10 minutes, they might have a widely different estimate of, of what's out there. Similarly, you know, if someone puts 10 traps in one pond versus someone who puts two traps in one pond or 30 traps in another pond, you're, you're going to come up with completely different answers of, of what lives in that pond. And so keeping track of all that's really important. For context, um, we've flipped something like 18,000 cover boards over the last 10 years and have out traps over like 5,000 trap nights, which is what we call... Um, the number of days each trap is out. So if you have 10 traps out for two nights, that would be 20 trap nights. And so we've just accumulated a lot of effort that way, which goes a long way towards getting, putting some numbers behind our observations. What are some of the most difficult species to monitor for? The rare. You know, we have two species that come to mind. We have one population of Graham's crayfish snake, one population of uh, eastern newts. Um, their detection probabilities are extremely low. So um, unless we're specifically targeting them and, you know, as John mentioned, throwing out, you know, 100 traps, we might not catch any. And that doesn't mean they're not there. And that doesn't mean they're not there in appropriate numbers. But, you know, they're rare they may occur at low densities naturally, and they can be very difficult to detect. And part of the reason, you know, we're working with John um, is he could determine things like detection probabilities. And, you know, at these model um, um, preserves, 
this is what the detection probability is given you put out this many traps or this many cover boards. And we can compare that across sites and, and come up with a likelihood of how likely that species is to be at a different preserve. John, what feeds into that, that likelihood? What, what factors go into um, detection probabilities? It really depends on the individual species. For example, if we're looking at salamanders, um, we have two pretty dominant species in Lake County. We have the blue-spotted salamander and the eastern tiger salamander. And what we found for them is that um, your detection probability for blue-spotted salamanders is highest in April, whereas for tiger salamanders, it's highest in around August. Um, and that's related to the differences in their natural histories around August, maybe those would be juvenile tiger salamanders that are leaving the wetlands that we're finding under our cover boards, um, whereas blue-sodded salamanders are more of a cold-tolerant species, and we're kind of at the southern end of their distribution. And so maybe in August, it's a little too hot for them to be out on the surface, and they're more likely to be underground. So that, that can be one thing. Other things could just be, you know, what kind of landscape are you in? Are you in a grassland or are you in the forest? If you are looking for snakes in the middle of the day in a grassland, it's probably going to be too hot and the snakes are going to be hiding. But if you're in a closed canopy forest, you might still have a decent chance of finding them just because it's still 75 degrees instead of 100 degrees. Um, so there's all sorts of different things um, that factor into those detection probabilities. And they're usually relatively high for birds. So if you go, and that's why we can do point counts for five minutes and listen and try to figure out what bird species are out there. Um, there's kind of a, a joke among nerds in wildlife where they say um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and then that's been expanded to snakes to say a snake in the hand is worth 10,000 in the bush because the detection probability for most snakes is is very very low and you need high amounts of effort or skill to accurately determine population estimates. I think there's also it's also worth mentioning that there's um, you know aside from small species that might have limited home ranges like snakes and amphibians. There's entire suites of species that we're always working on trying to incorporate into the wildlife monitoring program. So specifically uh, those secretive marsh birds, the uh, rails and bitterns aren't, uh, they're aquatic species that might not necessarily, that, that don't call a lot and are not typically seen very frequently. And so those are bird species that we're not typically picking up in our point counts because they're not out, uh, you know, projecting their uh, their presence at any of these individual points. Um, additionally, uh, in terms of mammals, um, rare carnivores that may just be passing through Lake County are species that don't necessarily get picked up at our randomized points on our uh, trail cameras. Um, so we've seen expansions in the last decade of things like uh, bobcats that aren't particularly rare in other parts of Illinois, but they have trouble dispersing into Lake County because of the level of development and uh, this Chicago being south of us, as well as Lake Michigan being to our east. Um, so we're kind of seeing, uh, we get, you know, rare reports of those coming in that are certainly worth documenting, as well as uh, river otters uh, seem to be taking quite a while to move across the county. And uh, another species that isn't necessarily picked up, uh, if you just have a randomized uh, camera point in a uh, forest preserve, you really need to localize your camera points or your sign surveys where they're leaving sign uh, near uh, streams or wetlands. Um, I'm working with Southern Illinois University on a pilot program doing uh, semi-aquatic mammal sign surveys specifically along our water courses, our, our wetlands and our riparian areas. So uh, 
those semi-aquatic mammal species, river otters, beavers, mink, and muskrat are being uh, detected through that program in addition to what we already have going on with the wildlife monitoring program. Other pilot programs have been launched in the past to use playback methods. So you uh, essentially just bring out a speaker to play uh, the breeding calls of some of these secretive marsh birds to, in an effort to get them to respond so that you can detect whether they're there or not. Uh, we don't currently have anything like that as a part of the wildlife monitoring program, but not to say it's not something worth incorporating in the future. I think it's also important to note one of the biggest factors in finding some of these extremely rare secretive uh, uh, animals is luck. And we have a, a method to record the species we encounter by luck. You know, our technicians and our uh, ecologists are out in the field quite a bit, and they're walking along the edge of a marsh. They might flush out a bittern. Um, it's not an official part of a, a wildlife monitoring program, but we do record that as a general wildlife observation, and that can tell us some really interesting things. So, you know, even if things that aren't officially part of a program, official sampling effort, we are recording that information and, and utilizing it the best we can. Well, and I think, too, if, if people in Lake County see a cool animal, they could, you know, call Andrew and let him know about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's a lot of the information we get. Someone reported they saw a Blanding's turtle in our yard, and uh, they sent me a picture, and it's in a, a new location. It's not, um, it has some pretty good habitat. It's adjacent to a forest preserve, and that's new information to us. So the public is certainly um, additional eyes and ears that we certainly encourage. We get a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, like, what's this, or I want to report this, um, and we, we certainly encourage that. And if it's something of note, we do investigate that and try to get it, that information into our, our database. People can also use um, things like iNaturalist, and they can, they can log their finds directly from their phone or computer. Someone um, uploaded a photo of a fox that they found in their backyard, and I think that's always a really cool finding because we actually don't have very many foxes within our forest preserves. So maybe they're out using the suburban landscape. Um, and so we're not surveying people's backyards. So if, if they see rare species in their backyards, then that's something that we're always interested in. So that brings up a good point, John. And I, you said there's not a whole lot of foxes in our forest preserves. And do you really think that's the case or is it a factor of low detection? Right, and that brings up an excellent point. It's kind of unclear at this point. Compared to other areas, we, we might expect that we would have more foxes being detected on our, our camera's traps, but without kind of a more deeper look, it's, it's kind of hard to disentangle low detection probabilities and low presence of a species. So it, it's, it's hard to prove a negative. What we can say is that we've, we certainly see red foxes scattered kind of throughout Lake County just in low numbers, at least relative to skunks and coyotes and other similarly sized mammals. Um, but at least to the best of my knowledge, um, we haven't documented any gray foxes on our, our camera traps, um, which is something that um, I'd like to look further into because gray foxes are a really cool species and it would be really nice to have them. And I think we have some really good habitat for them. And so gray foxes are really cool. If people don't know about them, they can actually climb trees almost like cats. And they're just a really, really unique carnivore. Um, they're the size of a house cat and they like to eat fruit a lot. Um, they're a really cool species. It'll be nice to see some. Yeah. And the gray fox is a good example of why we have the wildlife monitoring program here is, um, you know, long time ago, people created a list of what wildlife is present in Lake County, never quantified it. And, you know, lo and behold, it seems like gray fox have likely been extirpated from Lake County. 
there still are a few recent records from neighboring counties, but we haven't detected one in Lake County in a number of years. And um, by putting up these camera traps and actually surveying these sites, um, you know, we could actually say something about the gray fox presence. And, and the next question is, why aren't they present anymore? What are the factors in, in driving them out of Lake County, and what can we do to, to rectify that? I think I'll direct this to, to the wider group, which is, what are some major insights you've been able to draw about the wildlife populations in Lake County from the data collected through this program? Are there certain patterns over years, over decades that, that you've noticed, whether it's across the county or, or localized in certain preserves? One of the main ones that uh, might seem obvious to another ecologist or wildlife biologist is that um, essentially the larger patches of habitat have more species, um, which seems pretty, pretty general and pretty broad. Uh, but, um, you know, when we're trying to develop these larger complexes of preserves and green spaces where species can have connectivity of habitats, uh, that can be really important. And so a preserve like uh, Lakewood Forest Preserve likely has more species present than a preserve like uh, Lions Woods on the other side of the county that's much smaller. You know? Well, I don't know if that's exactly true. Maybe that was a bad example. Lions Woods, <laughs> well, like that, you know, the preserve size is a, certainly a huge factor in, you know, what species are present um, for obvious reasons. The other thing is remnant versus restored. So Lions Woods is largely remnant and really high quality. So you do get some rare species, um, probably a larger species list than some of our other preserves that are complete restorations. And I think one of the probably obvious but also interesting tidbits is I think the Lake County Forest Preserves and, and Forest Preserve in general do a really good job of restoring the habitat. But restoration is no substitute for preservation. And these, these remnant preserves... Um, you just cannot recre recreate them. We cannot do the same job that Mother Nature has done, and it, it shows in the data. Also worth noting is that, you know, uh, a lot of times with restoration, um, we assume that all of the restoration activities that uh, we're implementing are going to be positive for all of the species that are present. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of inferences amongst the restoration uh field, just the field of it in general, that, you know, if, if we restore this plant community and reduce the coverage of this invasive species, it's going to be positive for anything, uh, for everything that's there, which may not necessarily be true, which also kind of under, underpins the importance of the wildlife monitoring program. Just understanding how these changes, uh, prescribed fire, uh, um, invasive species management uh, might be affecting wildlife that are present. Having been involved in this program for, what, 12 years now? Um, one of the things I think we're getting close to being able to do is understand what trajectory we are after for these preserves. What is our management goal? What is our goal suite of, of wildlife we'd like to see there? Um, you know, are we trying to preserve all the rare species or are we trying to have a, a reservoir for the common species? We could have, you know, 100 species there that are all common, or do we want to target the 50 rare, more rare species? So it really kind of opens up the question of what is our target, what are our goals, so we could be more effective uh, managers. John, would you like to give us an overview of your PhD project? 
No. <laughs> um, sure. So Gary was kind of describing it, and what I'm what I'm doing is um, going out and working with Gary and Andrew, as well as the technicians and interns that collect the data, and am trying to get a, a sense for what is the status of wildlife in Lake County. How can we better apply the wildlife monitoring program to um, to kind of get more accurate data, and then also how do those land management practices influence what data we're collecting and, and what are the boots on the ground conservation implications. So what I kind of like about wildlife ecology is that you have to employ a lot of different skills and techniques, and you have to know a little bit about a lot of different things. So you can't just know about sparrows or something. You need to know a little bit about birds and a little bit about mammals and a little bit about reptiles and amphibians and a little bit about geography and geology and social sciences. And it's it's really fun in that sense in that you kind of get to have this broad set of facts about the world coming into your brain and trying to make sense of them. How do you make sense of them? <laughs> More math than I do thought you? before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you have to read a lot. And then you have to use a lot of math. And then you have to, fortunately, also spend a lot of time outside to make sure your results make sense biologically. So you might get an answer that is statistically significant, but if it's not biologically or ecologically significant, then how can it be applied on the landscape? It probably can't uh, or shouldn't. Um, and so it's important to be able to make those distinctions. What are some preliminary findings or trends that you've uncovered so far? Well, one of the things um, we've noticed is that blue-spotted salamanders seem to be doing really well. Um, and I think a lot of people, particularly those who really enjoy the preserves, might know that kind of anecdotally. They say, oh, yeah, you know, I see a lot of blue-spotted salamanders either in my window well or uh, if I'm walking on a rainy afternoon, I might see some. Or if I'm gardening and I roll over a log or a brick and I see a blue-spotted salamander and I live right next to the preserve, I might think they're doing pretty well. But we seem to have some data that supports that blue-spotted salamanders are actually doing really well. Um, they're distributed pretty widely among the forested regions of Lake County, and that we seem to have an increasing trend um, where the population is possibly not just stable, but increasing, um, possibly through a result of the really good landscape management that's happening. With our prescribed fires, there's some indication that that positively influences blue-spotted salamander populations. Um, and one of the ways that people think that might happen is when you go through and you do a prescribed fire in a woodland, um, you might be um, removing some of that leaf litter that would be in a wetland that might reduce oxygen levels um, as it decomposes. And there's also removing invasive species that might go into that, things like buckthorn. So that's one of the things that we're looking at. Other things I've been able to kind of tally what our most common species are. Um, so uh, the most common reptile, for example, is the painted turtle. Um, I think, which is, which is kind of cool. They're very ubiquitous and, um, they're also a really pretty turtle. And I think everyone is happy when they see a turtle and it's nice to know that they're kind of widespread throughout almost every one of our preserves that has a body of water. The, the best preserve for mammals is Lakewood, like Andrew kind of alluded to earlier. Um, there's been 26 species of mammals documented in Lakewood Forest Preserve. Kind of interestingly, the most common species of mammal that we detect, at least during our surveys, um, are, um, this species of, of mouse called um, a deer mouse or um, a white-footed mouse. It's kind of hard to tell those species apart um, in the field. Followed by, everyone can probably guess this, white-tailed deer. White-tailed deer are very common in, in Lake County. 
Fort Sheridan is actually our best preserve for birds, which is not very big, but it kind of makes sense from a, um, an ornithology standpoint because it's right along Lake Michigan, and so maybe we're picking up birds that are flying along the lakeshore. That probably, uh, I would imagine, you know, I haven't seen the entirety of uh, that, um, how broad that, that data set is for the bird detections, but I imagine some of it is the result of efforts from birding groups that are out there mm-hmm. uh, that are right on the lakeshore and having birding events. And so like Hawk Watch and Gull Watch, things like that, where they're documenting those migrating species that are going by and uh, potentially getting their way into the into the database and whatnot in addition to our, you know, our regular point counts. Absolutely. And um, one of the things other people have done and which I think makes sense to do is um, one of the things you can consider in your effort calculations are kind of distance to city center or things like that. And you can estimate, well, if there's more people looking, then maybe you're more likely to detect things. Or you have, your brain is is primed to look for certain things. And so if you really like birds and you happen to, you know that birding along the lakeshore can be particularly productive, then you might be out looking for birds a little differently than someone who's just casually looking for birds. What inspired you all to work in this field? I can say for me, um, I was always kind of a nerd who liked animals. And so getting into wildlife science seemed like a natural career path. Um, But specifically, uh, I remember I was camping in Vermont with my family when I was about six years old. And I found um, a newt crawling across the ground. And I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. No one in my family knew what it was. And I kind of formed a mental picture of it. And when I went home, I just literally leafed through the encyclopedia. And probably serendipitously, there was a picture of a newt. And because I was six, I don't think I would have noticed it in the text unless I saw a picture. And so from there on, I just read everything about reptiles and amphibians and wildlife as I could. And I never kind of lost that spirit. And so always outside camping and hiking and looking at animals, growing up and reading about animals and just went from there. Gary, how did you get started? Well, for, for me, I mean, I think most people in this field kind of grew up outdoors, uh, camping, fishing. But for me, I did never really realized I could make a career out of it until in like high school, I took one of those tests, like what should you be when you grow up? And I came back as a tree surgeon. I'm like, a tree surgeon? What is a tree surgeon? <laughs> I still don't quite know what yeah. a tree surgeon is. But, but it kind of opened my eyes. Um, I went to college to start off to, for computer science and quickly found out that was not for me, that, uh, that math and modeling and all that stuff is, I like to be outside. <clears throat> um, and then in college, um, I took an ecology course and um, quickly found I really enjoyed jumping into wetlands and trying to catch frogs and turtles. And um, my professors really encouraged me to kind of follow that line. Um, I grew up as a kid, always catching frogs and turtles and snakes and anything I could and bringing them home, much to my my mother's uh, delight. <clears throat> so it was kind of a natural fit. And once I realized you can make a career out of it, it kind of kind of ballooned off of there. Very similar story for me. I grew up camping, hunting and fishing and uh, catching frogs and salamanders and lizards and things. Um, but eventually, or initially, went into uh, biology thinking I wanted to be a, a game warden or a CPO um, because I was uh, interested in all the species that were uh, commonly hunted and trapped and whatnot, and then realized that uh, if you wanted to dig deeper, then you really needed to go further with your education. 
um, and you could have a lot bigger influence if you were actually a biologist that was, you know, implementing uh, the regulations that were being enforced and actually monitoring the, the wildlife that were on the landscape. And so from there, uh, actually started working for Gary right out of undergrad and then uh, went to uh, uh, graduate school. And uh, yeah, after realizing I needed a master's to <laughs> continue uh, to get a full-time job in this field and then uh, landed this position. So. If there's a parting piece of wildlife wisdom or advice you could share with our listeners, what might it be? Coyotes are smaller than you think. <laughs> the average coyote weighs like 35 pounds or less. They're, they're leggy, but they're not very big. I always tell people that uh, because they're kind of adapted to be able to run all day, they're mostly cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at like the inside of a coyote, it's like all lungs. So it looks like it would weigh more, especially in the middle of the winter <laughs> when it's super furry it's and air. whatnot. And it's, yeah, if you got them wet or you shaved them, <laughs> they're pretty small. Um, I think uh, one of the most important things to take away is that there's, um, with the complex of forest preserves and green space and state land that we have in Lake County, uh, there's a lot available, um, and it's certainly worth being curious and going out and spending more time in the preserves in general. And just, uh, you know, like we talked about before, if it's uh, becoming a, um, a weekend birder or something that's going to open up those areas and uh, get you curious about wildlife in Lake County, then uh do that. Uh, if you're just going on bike rides and noticing the insects or the plants that are around you, whatever, um, there's some um, a lot to be seen in Lake County and much more than you might think. Yeah, I'd echo those sentiments in like um, living in Lake County um, and working for the Lake County Forest Preserve District. You, we're pretty fortunate the kind of recreational opportunities we have um, and just the amount of wildlife and, and nature in general that are on our, our, our footsteps. Um, you know, we have a, a Ramsar Wetland, Illinois Beach State Park, Chain of Lake State Park, and then all of our forest preserve systems. We have some really incredible um, places to visit, um, some 55 different preserves, you know, 30,000 acres, and some really, really cool and rare wildlife that inhabits them. Um, and very little to be afraid of, even the snakes. So, you know, John was mentioning not to be af- afraid of coyotes because they're much smaller than you think. Um, you know, snakes, if you're not bothering them, they're not going to pose much of a danger as well. So, um, you know, get out, observe, learn, and uh, um, be kind to wildlife. Um, and I, I was actually going to say exactly what Gary uh, said. Uh, don't take the preserves for granted. Um, I live in, Lake, in uh, DeKalb, and I have to commute an hour and a half to get to Lake County to do some of the wildlife monitoring field work. And um, I, I'm never sorry I have to make the drive. Words of the Woods is produced by me, Brett Pito. Thanks to Gary Glowacki, Andrew Rudder, and John Vanek for participating in this episode. You can support the podcast by subscribing or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen. Remember to check out our website, lcfpd.org, where you can see everything we have to offer, from major conservation initiatives to educational programs and everything in between. That's lcfpd.org. Thank you for listening. Today, take a moment, get outside, and listen to what the woods are saying in your Lake County Forest Preserves. Next time on Words of the Woods. 
Thousands of native plant species call Lake County's nearly 31,000 acres of forest preserves home. All of these plants are unique and interesting in their own ways. Patty Vitt, manager of ecological restoration, and Ken Click, restoration ecologist, each have decades of botanical experience, studying and appreciating plant communities in Lake County and elsewhere. We'll discuss big trends, big patterns, and big ideas. In short, we'll ponder plants and why they matter. Words of the Woods is a production of the Lake County Forest Preserves in Libertyville, Illinois.